The climate time bomb is ticking. It's a time for transformation. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable July. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that will come, that will earn that honour in the future. We acknowledge that we will never have climate justice until we have justice for First Nations people in this country. We also acknowledge and hope that we realise the value in channeling the ancient wisdom that they acquired from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before they were invaded. Can you believe that Australian taxpayers pay more than $22,000 a minute in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry? The upcoming federal budget will reveal whether the Labor government will continue the addiction to coal, oil and gas. Let's be clear, a gas-led recovery is a hangover from the previous government. Gas is a climate disaster. It is 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So more gas equals more climate destruction. The federal budget shows us what the Albanese government prioritises, what they're funding and what they're not funding. Australian public money should be spent building a future where we all thrive in a safe climate, not spent propping up the industries that are fueling the climate crisis. If Australia exported renewable-powered products and services, we could create almost 400,000 jobs and add $89 billion to the economy by 2040. So here's our message for the Albanese government for this federal budget. Don't give any more money to coal, oil or gas. Sign our no new coal and gas petition and stand up for our renewable future. There's someone in a hurry and good on her. I mean, good on ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation, for putting out a petition now saying a responsible government should not be using our public money to keep funding the fossil fuel industry. I mean, what are they thinking? Funding climate fuel floods, devastation and destruction for communities in Queensland and New South Wales and so on, all the different things we're seeing. We need, the government needs to stop spending public money on fossil fuels. Says now also in a very clear but fast language, the Australian Conservation Foundation, which is an organization with 700,000 members. And the petition they've put out with the title End Coal and Gas in Australia has so far had 14,000 people who've signed it. There's still a way to go. I mean, why hasn't every single member of ACF, the 700,000 Australians, signed this petition already? But that can come. And hopefully with you adding your name as well, uh, we'll put the link out in our podcast notes on climatesafety.info. And speaking of petitions, the same goes for the new letition that's out. We've entered a new month and that means there's a new letition out. A letition, if you don't know what that is, that's a new invention coming here from the Geelong region. Uh, It's a mix between a petition and sending a letter. So that's why it's called a letition, where you send a letter to your local MP, but it's done in an organized and synchronized way so that it works a bit like a petition. There's knowledge about how many letters have been sent. 
And the idea with that is to create even more pressure and create a bigger impression, you could say, on the politicians so that they make the right decisions and know what the community is thinking. And speaking about the community here in Geelong, there are three important meetings in this regard coming up. And it would be good to see a strong appearance there of anyone who's concerned about climate. Because as we know, a large turnout is what's noted, whether the community cares about this. On Saturday, the city of Greater Geelong is organizing a net zero forum about how we are going to reach that net zero target that the council has set up for Geelong by 2035, which is only, let me count, 12 years from now. And that's about developing a way where we as community come together and work with greater level of collaboration. The registration has closed for that meeting, but then on Wednesday, the 10th of May, is the launch of this report, which The Real Deal has created with more than 200 interviews with local residents here in Geelong. Interviews which highlight the different issues that people are concerned about uh, and, and which the politicians need to hear and to act on. It turns out it's very much about the cost of living, energy bills, about the climate impacts on housing and flooding and so on, and the, even the mold that we are experiencing uh, from the climate impacts in our community. 10th of May, Wednesday, there's a free Thai curry dinner served from 6 p.m. And uh, then the event begins at 6.30. It happens at Cloverdale Community Center in Corio. And registrations there are essential. The link will put it out in the podcast notes. And then on Thursday, the 25th of May, two weeks later, that corporate lawyer who's got this great idea that we should add just 11 important words to the corporate law, section 181, about the director's duty. And who we interviewed in the Sustainable Hour just a couple of weeks ago. He's now coming to Geelong to speak at the Geelong Library at 5 p.m. on Thursday, the 25th of May. You'll be able to register for that. It will open this week at the website supportthecode.au. These are the kinds of events where a large turnout will be noted by politicians in the room. So be there if you live in the area of Geelong and uh, would like to see some action on climate change. Over to you, Colin Market, AOM, who's got the finger on the global pulse and the global outlook. Thank you, Mick. And our roundup this week begins in India, which is about to open the world's third biggest solar farm. It's called Pavagada Ultra Mega Solar Park. It's in Tumatkura district of Karnataka. That's a state in southern India. It covers 13,000 acres, that's about 40 square kilometers, and it surrounds five small villages. Its output of 2,000 megawatts is four times that of the largest solar farm in the US. The new plant sits third in the world, First is another Indian installation, the Bahandra Solar Park in the north of India, and the second and fourth places are both in China. The new mega park has the potential to be expanded to become the biggest solar farm in the world, and India has other installations in the pipeline. And once again, it demonstrates how far behind 
Australia is in the world's efforts to decarbonise, despite our obvious sunshine advantages. To Europe, where there was further proof of this, if any was ever needed, Last week, a new network of cables under the North Sea was unveiled. It's called Lion Link. This installation links the UK and the Netherlands with a number of offshore wind farms. It's being called the world's largest multi-use electricity power line, and it will boost energy supplies enough to power millions of homes in both the UK and the Netherlands. The cross-border electricity line will be the second of its kind in the world, with the first having been built by Germany and Denmark. However, LionLink will be able to carry more than four times the amount of electricity that that one does, making it the largest of its kind in terms of capacity anywhere in the world. The Climate and Energy Minister for the Netherlands, a fellow by the name of Rob Jett, said... With the North Sea becoming the largest supplier of green electricity for the Netherlands and large parts of Europe, we are ready to expand the intercontinental connection between the two countries. LionLink provides close to 2 gigawatts of electricity to both countries. That's enough to power 2 million households. And that fits in nicely with two new reports that were released simultaneously in the US and the UK. Each concluded that fast, dramatic climate action is not only the most sensible course for the world to take, it's also best for ensuring prosperity for the nations that take it. The first study, released by the US's Renew Economy, found that the best path for the global economy would involve rapid cuts to climate pollution. It concluded that drastic actions to cut emissions would potentially reduce the economic costs of climate damage by tens of trillions of US dollars, and that fail to do so would slow the US's economic growth. And the second paper, which was published in the UK's well-regarded scientific magazine Nature, featured a new study that reached exactly the same conclusion. It said that early inaction leads to warming that cannot be undone later by spending more on abatement. The report's co-author, Germot Wagner, said, Based on everything we think we know about technology, climate damages and etc., it would indeed be optimal to cut emissions massively now. Now, I just hope that the federal government is listening. Now to the rise in ocean temperatures that we've reported on for the past two weeks. Another new report from America confirms that data, but says that scientists don't really understand what's caused it. According to the collated data by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, ocean temperatures have been higher than in any previous year. The study found that the global average sea surface temperature is over 21 degrees Celsius, an unprecedented level that experts say shows that climate change is happening before our eyes. A separate study found that the global average ocean sea surface temperature increased by 0.2% centigrade from early March to this week. A huge change in a short period of time, according to the University of Colorado climate scientists. 
Scientists have been unable to explain the warming which has happened at a time when ocean temperatures are typically in decline and before the onset of an El Nino weather event. Some theorise that the temperature increase is a result of a turnaround from three years of cooling during La Nina, meaning that many more records are likely to fall in the coming month. We'll keep you posted. Now for the good news this week, it's to China, where the current Shanghai Car Show, um, car makers and battery producers launched a new range of EVs that will use sodium batteries in what's called subcompact cars, only for the Chinese market. We reported two weeks ago about the breakthroughs in batteries that use sodium instead of lithium. Apparently there are obvious advantages for sodium over lithium, including that they hold a charge for longer and appear to be uh, recharged for unlimited times without declining in power. But they're bigger and heavier than the lithium-based batteries. Research into the sodium batteries began in the US in the 1970s, continued mainly in Japan, but now China is a centre for research and production. 16 of the world's 20 sodium battery manufacturers are in China. And the most promising use for sodium batteries is not in cars, but for the grids, the networks of wires and towers that transmit electricity. Batteries for grids are the fastest growing market, especially in China. Sodium batteries need to be bigger than lithium ones to hold the same electrical charge. Now that's a problem for cars because they've got limited space, but not for grid storage. They're perfect for that. And that piece of good news ends my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Jeff Ebbs. Jeff is he's a busy lad. He's, he's an author, he's a broadcaster, he's a researcher, specifically into small business and focused on urban food. He's based in Brisbane and his most recent book is Your Life, Your Planet. So welcome, Jeff. Good to speak with you, Tony. Where do you want to start? With your research or the book? Well, the, um, the book, Your Life, Your Planet, was uh, written for with Australian Geographic and it was based on a 2005 book that I did called Sydney's Guide to Saving the Planet. So in 2005, we were putting together 101 tips that you could follow in your domestic life to reduce your carbon footprint which was all pretty new at that stage. And so we were outlining, um, you know, things like changing light globes, putting solar hot water on your roof, the advantage of solar panels, and, you know, just building up the picture of how we might live more sustainably. Um, Fifteen and a bit more years on, what we really need to understand is what impact we're having because we've gone through decades of denial, misinformation, and so on. And it's really important to understand what we are actually doing and how we have the greatest impact. And so that's what I focused on in this uh, latest book. So we go through many of the same tips, but in each case, we measure what the impact is and discuss how that fits into your overall approach to life. And one of the big things that I've focused on is the role of community, doing things together. 
and sharing the sourdough bread that you make or whatever it is that you're doing as part of um, promoting and promulgating the uh, philosophy around. So, you know, those sort of community gardens, community composting, um, repair cafes, all of these things are an important part of the fabric of building a sustainable, resilient society. And that's much more important than any piece of technology that we can implement or replace. Um, I live in a small complex of townhouses. Well, not that small, 50 townhouses. We've got some spare land, so we've started to build a community garden there. The process you go through in forming community, convincing people that it's a good idea, um, getting rid of the sort of mentality that we must own things and lock them up and that, you know, if you grow zucchinis in a public space, someone might steal them, you know. <laughs> They're all valid and real concerns and we don't want to downplay the fears that people have or the how annoying people can be when we try and do things together. Um, but those are the challenges that we have to overcome. And so I find that thing, like the Seed Savers Network is incredible. So the idea of seed saving is that we grow a crop, we keep the seeds, we share the seeds. That means that those seeds are true to type. The children are the same as the parents. And, you know, we can buy them in a shop called Heirloom Seeds. Um, but those kind of distributed networks of sharing are much more resilient. When you compare Seed Savers Network globally, which is a global movement, to something like the Doomsday Vault, I can't remember the actual name of the place, but uh, what you have is a major project partly funded by the Norwegian government, partly funded by the Melissa and Bill Gates Foundation and a number of other very high-level companies, their aim is to store 10% of the world's food stocks, to store seed for 10% of the world's food crops in a vault under the ice in an island near Iceland. Now, recently, because of uh, global warming, some of the ice started to melt and water dripped into some of the el electronics, um, storing this incredibly huge, expensive refrigerator that's supposed to save us all in the future. Those kind of concentrated technological solutions might be amazing, might be fantastic, might be able to do some good things, but they can't replicate what hundreds of thousands of people sharing seeds in little paper packets can do. And I think that, to me, is the essence of what we're talking about. Absolutely. Now, you're also a broadcaster. What does that look like when you... Um, well, is it when, when, of, when we you, met Yonks ago, I was uh, working for Byron Bay, Bay FM in uh, Byron Bay, and producing a show called The Generator, which was mainly about the politics of energy. We're still trying to <laughs> end coal and mm -hmm. gas in Australia now. We're still battling the arguments that fossil fuels are doing less harm than digging up lithium or whatever we need for renewable batteries. You know, the... The content of denial changes, but the uh, recipe is still the same, misinformation from people protecting their vested interests. So um, in hindsight, what we were reaching for when we came up with the name The Generator was probably Power Plant because me with my energy um, politics of energy and someone else who wanted to put a gardening show were sort of jammed together in the same hour and, you know, tried to combine our um, 
passions. And so I'm more or less doing the same thing 20 years later, but in Brisbane's 4ZZZ. Uh, so I participate and contribute to a show called Eco Radio that's been going for 45 years. So, you know, I do some segments that are a bit sort of philosophical and about the existential crisis uh, that's called The Cage. So I sort of, you know, let my hair down literally and uh, speak from The Cage. And um, then other segment called Grow Up, which is just about, you know, what you need to do in the garden this week. Well, it's time to grow up. Yeah, terrific. We had a similar thing during COVID was... Uh, the tunnel. The tunnel. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Just, well, uh, interesting how we head underground when we're dealing with existential crisis. I'd say the, the, the courage is subterranean and down here I reflect on what's going on up there. So I guess yeah. the tunnel had a similar... You, you like, Jeff, I think with the story that you're telling us, you like the story about why we, we talked about the tunnel. It actually went, it's, it's about what happened during the Second World War when uh, Hitler was trying to bomb people into fear and into giving up in the war. Uh, so people met in the underground stations. They went underground. And uh, as, as researchers later found out, it was as if, the coming together of people down there in the undergrounds actually made London and the people of London more resilient than ever. They didn't sit down there in fear. They found strength in coming together the way. And, and there's, a, there's some beautiful photographs that show how people are sitting on the train tracks talking and, mm. uh, you know, finding that courage that's needed to win a war. Mm. And I think, you know, one of the things that we um, struggle with at the moment is hanging on to that hope in the face of such uh, constant bad news. And if we look at the scientific reports and we think scientifically, it's very hard to see how we're going to clamber our way out of the situation that we've created. But it's in that human resilience that hope resides. And, you know, no matter how significant the crisis, it's when people get together, sometimes huddling in shelters like that, that the human spirit emerges and, um, you know, hope is reborn. It appears to me that the biggest hurdle we are up against of all is that story that is out there and you can't tell where it's coming from, but it's definitely coming because of the media that we watch and the people that the media chooses to interview and so on. A story about, for instance, that switching over to renewable energy is going to be very expensive and it's unreliable and uh, all these kind of things but also a story about that it's never going to work if we work together you can only rely on yourself mm. i think the um challenge is that we have created an individualistic society where everything is focused on uh, convenience and comfort and that's a natural human urge and what we have to keep in mind, those of us who are thinking big picture, is that that's a natural human instinct. Even ants' nests accumulate a whole lot of stuff from the exterior and bring it back. So the idea that we want to be comfortable and secure and that we want to grab things and have as much as we can is not an evil or bad urge. What we've lost is the awe and the, um, sub, you know, uh, we're not submissive to nature anymore. We have stepped out to conquer nature and we see ourselves as in control. We are unstoppable. 
And so whereas in a forest you get all of these creatures greedily living their life, consuming as many resources as they can, and then they die and share their bounty with everybody else. But we have locked up the resources that we've grabbed in waste and we've expelled that waste into areas where it's no longer useful, so we're out of harmony. So it's not our individual um, desires that we have to subsume, it's the sharing of the things once we've finished with it. Mm. There was a banner I saw, you know, just in the last week, there's been so many demonstrations, both in America and in the UK, with thousands and thousands of people on the street. And there was one banner in London saying this, and I'll read it up. The utter incredibleness of existence, of life, billions of years of ever repining complexity, diversity, intricacy, beauty. We are just one species among millions. And this we knowingly dismantle. Where is our sense of awe, of wonder, of humility? Absolutely. I mean, that's such a beautiful and succinct, succinct summary of the challenge, isn't it? And so, um, Tony, you mentioned my research. My research is into the distribution of uh, food in urban areas and the possibilities of um, recreating urban production and processing of food as a way of reducing packaging and transport and so on. And what I am discovering is that it is that um, rebalancing of things that we need to do. Because when we look at why we have the industrial agro business, the you know agro-industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, that does so much harm, it's all in the name of efficiency and profit. So we, what we have found is ways that we can manufacture as much food stuff to fill our stomachs and keep us alive as possible, but we've lost touch with the real values of that food that you know nurtures us and keeps us well so the you know if we take the essence of that banner that you just shared Mick and we're able to build that into our daily shopping decisions then we would start to have an answer and then we would be resistant to the messages from the media that you've identified as the problem because we can't stop the, we can't stop the media we can't stop the um, mega wealthy corporations from being mega wealthy corporations but they rely on us harnessing ourselves to that debt culture and that process of buying stuff we don't need to keep that economy going and so all we can do is control the things that we can control and so all we can do is work together to start from the individual and the community and localize these solutions to solve these global problems. Jeff, one of the best food projects that I've come across in my research is something in Brisbane and that's Food Connect. What what are they up to of late? I've lost contact a bit with them. Okay, well, that's quite an incredible story. Uh, Food Connect started about uh, 20 years ago as a basic food sharing, food box business, providing, you know, food grown with care to customers. And their basic principle was the farmer should be paid fairly. And so they made a rule the farmer will get half of the retail price. 
And they've gone through a series of evolutions over those two decades to try and make that happen. And um, at one stage, they realised that the rent was the major expense that they confronted. And so they went out to their customers and asked, uh, would people be interested in investing in buying the premises? The owner at the time was considering um, getting out, uh, you know, it was a big old military shed in a suburb where all of the munitions were uh, created in the Second World War. And so um, we raised, I say we, because I was one of the careholders, as they called us, who, um, you know, invested a couple of thousand each, and we ended up raising three million and buying the premises. So there's now 30 or 40 businesses uh, all involved in food production and so on in the Food Connect shed. And the Food Connect Foundation continues to raise funds, start new businesses, launch new projects, advise other food hubs around Australia to, you know, on, on how to create these things and what the challenges are. Uh, so the Food Connect, and full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Food Connect Foundation. So, you know, I'm not trying to hide that. Uh, so the foundation is currently advising a group in Tasmania on setting up a food hub and some of the challenges that that involves. One of the major challenges was that the original Food Connect model of going and picking up food from farmers, taking it to a central warehouse, putting it in boxes and sending it to customers was really an attempt to try and replace the whole distribution and retailing business. So it was trying to do everything that wholesale all of the middle people, the providors and so on, right up to the delivery of a box of fresh food to someone's door. And that was actually too hard. You know, as Red Tomato in the US said, when they went on the same journey, you end up concentrating on rubber and concrete and not on food. So the infrastructure and the need to feed that infrastructure drags down the whole system. And so a group of people, um, you know, from that business are exploring different models of how to replace that bit of the business. And in the meantime, hundreds of food box delivery services have emerged, each with their different focus. Um, there's one called Muscle Food, which is just for people who want to get big muscles. And there are other ones for people who are allergic to different types of food. And, you know, all of those Businesses have different ethical and moral frameworks. Most of them are just purely in it for the money. But uh, what that means is that that piece of the puzzle isn't necessarily where someone trying to solve the food problems should should start. So probably a bit of a longer and more detailed answer than you expected, but it's evolved considerably over the two decades, I guess would be the one-line statement. Yeah, that's incredible. That's really uh so much community development has germinated from that um, that one idea 20 years ago. Well, speaking, speaking of germination, there's one project uh, which we call the um, Food Connect Stone Mill, and that is that a pair of young farmers from, I think, southern New South Wales built a granite uh, mill for milling grain. And it's specifically designed to be able to mill grain of different sizes and um, types. So it doesn't matter whether it's a high protein or a low protein grain. 
um, and it's been uh, put in a steel framework. A lot of the old traditional mills were put in wood, but because Brisbane is in a humid climate, if you have a wooden frame for your mill, you have a lot of moisture and that upsets the, um, you know, it means the flour comes out damp and clumpy. And so currently uh, that project is being handed over to a group of Indigenous food producers who are uh, working with uh, native grain growers to try and develop a distribution network for a mixture of native grain and locally grown organic grain to feed the market for, you know, bread, pasta and all of those other products that rely on ground-up cereal. And, you know, that's just one project. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Jeff. We'll get you back on it later on the show to round off. Uh, our next guest today is, and you mentioned um, Repair Cafes, uh, Mended Oz. Now, the initials of that is MIA, and the only MIA that I knew was missing in action, and I can assure our listeners that these two are not missing in action. So, Karen and Danny, thanks for coming on. And uh, tell us about MIA and, and what you guys are up to. Well, thank you, uh, Mick and Tony and the Sustainable Hour for having us uh, on. And uh, Jeff's uh, interview uh, has been a great segue into repair cafes and mm. repairing, uh, right to repair, and that's uh, where we are active activists, retired activists, uh, beating the drum. Uh, as much as we can, peacefully, of course, around uh, those uh, those uh, topics. We started probably back uh, all over over a decade ago now in our local community. We probably were activists then. We didn't realise it, but we were trying to get a repair cafe in the local area where we were living at the time. And we were having no success we were having trouble engaging the local community and uh, that could partly be uh, our fault as well because uh, we were not really engaged from the start in our local community. Uh, but we did try and uh, we, we got something up and running, but it didn't last very long for several reasons, which I won't go into, but uh, probably some that you could imagine, like red tape and bureaucracy around uh, DIY repair in the community and trying to get council buy-in, um, and councils can be quite risk-adverse, as we know. So uh, we decided to then, you know, brand ourselves as Mended Australia, Mia or missing in action, and uh, off we uh, off we went to uh, tour around repair cafes that we're establishing, and we had uh, experienced ourselves in establishing one, but also uh, we were able to assist when we did go around to these repair cafes because uh, we are fixers ourselves, myself, you know, textiles, and Danny, electrical, mechanical fixing of things and, uh, you know, we, we got well-known. We Repair cafes usually run about uh, once a month, some run every two months, and uh, we, uh, we got around to about 43 one year, so we were going to them once a week um, and um, for, for a couple of years we did that and then, of course, COVID uh, come along and uh, we were housebound, we were doing some online. 
And what has happened since then is that we've just become more and more um, into activism rather than going to repair cafes. We still keep our hand in at one repair cafe and um, the rest of the time we're pretty much, as Tony knows, on, on social media every day uh, banging the drum for reuse and repair and the right to repair and the circular economy. And uh, that's where we find ourselves sitting quite well because repair cafes at the moment are quite uh, siloed. And uh, we like to have a bit of the bigger picture in mind. And so we've moved away from that and we're thinking we'd really like to see repair cafes and tool libraries and, and uh, community gardens or repair in, in repair and reuse sheds. And Sustainability Victoria has that vision in its 10-year strategic plan, but that hasn't eventuated yet. They're working towards it with some uh, projects where they're funding repair cafes in local communities. They're funding a project officer to run those in local communities in neighbourhood houses. But neighbourhood houses have other projects going on and we're really seeking for these sheds, think men's sheds, but inclusive of all, where you can go and become more resilient and learn to reuse and repair and embrace the circular economy, neighbour, helping neighbour, and no real big need for any experts to be telling us how to run our lives and what the circular economy is all about because we've been doing that for decades. So that's yes. our story. Yeah, so it's very much community building as in uh, Jeff what excites him about the work that he is involved in as well is that that people coming together and, and working on solutions together. Yeah, I, I think, Tony, it's educating people as well because they think that they've got these items that no value anymore, but they are. We, we try and get them involved and see what can happen with a little bit of knowledge and give them the confidence to say, hey, give it a go. If it's broken, not much else can happen to it except you put it in the bin. Well, why not try and pull it apart? Uh, that's why I love – I tell uh, Karen to come out and take a video of me pulling something apart. She might post it on, on her social media and we just show people that, yeah, it can be done because a lot of this stuff I haven't – it'll be the first time I've seen it but I'm willing to give it a go. And, yeah, it's just that education and just get, let's give it a try. And if you don't know, get out there and ask somebody because there's so many people out there that are willing to help. you just got to find them. And uh, I think that's uh, one of our, another one of our main missions. I really love from a personal perspective, simply to have the power to repair what breaks because you know it saves me money first of all but it's yes. also a better feeling isn't it oh. uh, however now that we have three experts in our sustainable hour today i would like to lift the helicopter one bit up and have a talk about the bigger perspective on circular economy because some of us would fear especially in a time now where we have all this discussion about cost of living crisis that then leads to 
unemployment in a way because people get fired there's not enough people out there shopping so it means uh, people lose their jobs they have to go from their homes they can't pay their mortgage and all these questions about economy that we have in the air at the moment circular economy sounds great from a personal perspective we save money as individuals but how about the employment because when my blender breaks down if i go out and buy a new one at least i'm supporting some factory and some people who are working in that factory that are producing blenders. What's the bigger perspective on the circular economy? How do we keep society running? How do we keep people in jobs? Well, I think, uh, Nick, it's, um, for a start, we haven't got a local industry. That, that's a really big issue. Um, and the expertise is getting thinner and thinner as the years go by because you go out there, you try and find a repair shop on the high street, there's basically none. I think, you know, Danny's right. We've got um, we've got manufacturing that's not happening here onshore and, uh, of course, um, education skills, you know, with the, uh, the shuttering of uh, the tech schools, for example. <laughs> um, and uh, you look to, to the Nordic countries and uh, how they still have, you know, these sort of classes in schools and things, and that's all pretty much gone in Australia. Um, and also... Um, It'd be really good to be designing things better and to have regulation and legislation around manufacturing, of course, onshore, but also manufacturing better products. Mm. Jeff, what's your take? I would like to keep the helicopter right up there, but I want to turn the question inside out. The reason we can't engage in a lot of the activities that we should engage in to be more sustainable is we don't have enough time. Yeah. And the reason we don't have enough time is because we're working so hard to make money to pay all the bills to buy all the things that we think we need. Now, it's not just that we're silly and we're buying stuff that we don't need. It's that the things that we do need, like our homes, are so extremely unaffordable that we are on this debt treadmill, which keeps the finance sector alive and the money trickling upwards to the mega wealthy who manage the finance sector and so on. So what about if we said, well, I don't care about money, I only care about time. I'm happy to give my time up to hem my own jeans, darn my socks, shop around for socks that can be darned instead of thrown away. So that instead of being on that treadmill where we're working harder and harder to get more and more money to engage in the existing economy, we started to undermine and undo the existing economy by focusing on giving ourselves more time and using that time to repair things, to communicate with each other. Now, that's a sort of grassroots dream in one sense, but in another sense, that's the fundamental shift that we have to make as a society. Because as long as we are looking at society through the lens of the banking sector or the mega wealthy and saying that we must maintain the economy, and, you know, I haven't heard a government for 25 years questioning the centrality of economic growth. I remember during the financial crisis, in 2008, there were about two days where no one knew what to say. And suddenly, for and literally, it was for two days, 
there were voices on air say, questioning the value of the share market as a mechanism for managing the economy, questioning the value of investment banks as a <laughs> instrument for, for controlling the flow of money in the world. There were people saying things like, do you understand that the amount of money in the economy is about 30 times the value of the goods which exist in the world. This money is an abstract concept which people are gambling and our lives are being sucked into this game of, not thrones, but, you know, <laughs> this game of chips. And then all of a sudden the economists sort of found a voice and they found a way to say, oh, yes, well, this is a problem of, you know, regulation of the bank. But even in those third, fourth and fifth days of the global financial crisis, the real solid right-wing free marketers were saying, let the banks crash. This is what has to happen. But then governments caved and they bailed out the existing banks. They didn't even follow their neoliberal money free market theory. They went back to some kind of compromise where we look after the banks and the mega rich because they're what keep us all going. And as long as we're all working hard and paying our interest rates, the wheels keep turning. And I think we just have to turn it on its head Yes, I think that's so relevant, Jeff, because I've always said all along I, I could never understand why uh, we've got this adverse at the minute down here in Victoria about all these gambling ads, right? It's such a big blight on society. Yet for decades and centuries they've had this big financial con where we've got to invest all, put all our money into the financial stock market which is a big gamble for everybody anyway. We need the rest of the community to, to understand that it, it is. It's only there for one person to keep make the rich richer. Well, it's unfortunately um, he's dead now, but a fellow called Dave Graber wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs and another <laughs> book called Debt. Mm. And, you know, I mean, he's a serious academic. He was also one of the founders of the Occupy movement, so Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Seattle. And he provided a lot of the intellectual theoretical background for those movements. But essentially what he says in the book Debt is that until some pre-Roman times, and my research indicates it was really in India, until a certain point in human history, the banks were more or less facilitators of the market. So, you know, people came to market on a weekly basis or whatever and traded, and there needed to be some kind of banking system to enable trade. But whenever there was a crisis, a fire, a plague, a flood, the governments would open the granary and open the treasury and say to everyone, you know, take what you need. We're cancelling all debt. We're all going back to square one. Society is going to start again once we've got through the crisis. And then after that point in history, the financiers said, no, you owe us $10 billion. After the crisis, you will all have to start working again to repay the debt. And that, that was the point in history where money took over from wisdom in governance. I haven't done enough research to question that. But if you go to his other book about uh, bullshit jobs, the point that he's making is we are now working to keep the wheels of the economy turning, not to actually feed and clothe ourselves. So we follow each other around with clipboards measuring each other, and we even follow the people who walk around with clipboards measuring other people. We follow them around to measure how much they're measuring. 
We're creating all of this work to understand how fast the wheels are spinning or how long it will be before the cogs wear down on that wheel. And it's all of this fictional, abstract nonsense. So, How is it that, how come we get it and so many other people don't get it? <laughs> yes. Good, good question. <laughs> Well, I think it goes back to the observation that even ants go out of their nest to collect things and bring them back centrally. It's, it is instinctive, not just in a human instinct, but it's actually it's the nature of life to create order and organise things. In chemistry, we talk about energy levels. And so if we allow a chemical system to run on its own, it will run downhill. Entropy will dominate. And the basis of the Gaia principle is we can tell whether the planet's alive or not, because if it's not alive, it will be look like a lump of rock. When you look at Earth from outer space, there's all of this fizzing and bubbling and chemistry going on. There must be life there to concentrate that energy. And so it's the nature of life to want to do the kinds of things that money does. So we've invented money as this abstract way of summing up how energetic uh, but what we've done is we've lost touch with the reality. We've lost our awe for nature. We think that the fizz and bubble that we've created through all of this activity, we think that is reality. And we now live in a time where I call it the realm of the screens. So we have now entered the realm of the screens where for many of us, what happens inside our phone or on the other side of that screen is more real and more important than what happens outside us. You can now buy a virtual Gucci bag, which is more expensive than buying a real Gucci bag. Why? Because people care more about how they are dressed inside the metaverse than they care about how they are dressed in the real world. So it's not some evil monster who's making us <laughs> do this fizzing and popping that's unreal. It's actually our own fascination. It's our own love of the new and everything. And so when we talk about how do we live sustainably, we really need to think about how do we calm ourselves down and start to appreciate the taste of a fresh pea compared to the taste of a salted caramel chalk-coated ice cream. But, Jeff, isn't it, um, we'll use gardening, but aren't we fed all this stuff by the multinationals, government and all that to do exactly that and buy that Gucci bag? That, yes. You but, when you, but when you go and knock on the door of the evil empire, there's just a man in a funny suit behind a screen with a microphone. There are only humans. There yeah. is no them. It's not them and us. It's only us yeah. because we are, we are all us. So, yes, yeah, some people are driven by greed. Some people are bullies, you know. Some people are horrible people. But there's no, there's no one that we can go to and say, oh, could you please get rid of all of the bullies for us so that we can live nicely? Because when you do that, you create another set of empower, you empower someone else to be dominant, and then they become the bullies. So who polices the police? This is the problem of civilization. We have to actually take responsibility for ourselves. We have to go back to those basic philosophical things that we live in a moral universe, we're responsible for our own moral destiny, and unless we can actually manage that for ourselves, we go straight back into this loop that we've just described. 
Mm. And the trouble, Jeff, is that there um people and Karen told me this um term years ago. We all a lot of people are just get into this thing and it's learned helplessness. They're looking for other people to solve their problems. And that's why they scroll through their phone to find someone to solve their problem and off we go again. When we get into this thing where people are just relying on the middleman sometimes too. That man in the suit <laughs> to, to fix their problem. And yep, absolutely. it's not gonna happen. It, it should always come back to you. You're the one that may have caused the problem. So you solve the problem. You as an individual have got powers and people don't realise that. And when you all get together, it's uh, it's amazing what you can do. Well, I was just going to say it's not pretty. You know, no. when I try and sit down with my 50 neighbours to start a community garden. <laughs> I've, I've got eight people who are really engaged. I've got a 15 people who say that they support it and most of the rest don't care. And even when the eight of us sit down to garden, we squabble like a pack of chooks because we've all got different ideas. And, and unless you're prepared to have those stand-up fights and all the things that it takes to be human, unless we actually are prepared to take that responsibility instead of going to the middleman, we, we can't solve those problems. And it's really, really hard work. It's really, really tedious. And it's much, much easier to kick back and turn on the telly and open a beer, you know. It just is. Yes. Um, Minded Australia has found that too, especially just being two people, um, you know, being activists for uh, for repair and community repair and, and then, you know, global, global repair and uh, telling it as it is from our personal perspective and, you know, walking the talk as well by, you know, not consuming much at all, by living basically out of the e-waste bin as uh, as uh, Tony Tony knows in my recent uh, article on uh, on LinkedIn. Um, it's uh, saying no to the middleman, saying no to the Maldives nationals. We're just not going to do that. We're not going to live that way, and uh, and and fighting back. And yes, Jeff, it is it is hard. Um, it is frustrating at times, but uh, the fight is a good fight. Danny and I want to be good ancestors, and we want to be um uh good ancestors to our to our grandchildren to show them that they can reuse and repair things they just don't go and shop at Kmart all the time and then chuck stuff away so that's that's as you said that's all we can do take responsibility for ourselves and try and be good leaders um good ancestors and i mean it's marvelous that you were persisting karen because that's that's where hope lies and, um, you know, it, it's great. There's help on the way. I'm working with Professor Leanne Wiseman at Griffith, who's um, lobbying for the right to repair at national and international levels. And she's part of the Repair Cafe network. We've just started a repair cafe on campus in Griffith and have now just taken that to the executive of the university and got support in principle. We haven't yet seen how that support is going to <laughs> be realised, but, um, you know, help is on the way. Well, Jeff, that's really great I'm, uh, because I'm on the steering committee 
of Leanne's Australian uh, Repair Network. Well, there you are. It's a small <laughs> world, especially when you... <laughs> it's a small world, and we are all banding together. Yeah, and it's, it's all about making these connections. But well, you know, th- thank you for existing, the sustainable hour. We need, we need um, sustainable hours in every day. We need people making connections, and that's something that uh, Mended Australia has been trying to do. We mightn't be travelling around to all these repair cafes anymore, uh, but uh, on social media we are really trying to make those connections and we tag a lot of people in and uh, we have been uh, uh, denigrated for actually tagging certain people in, uh, but uh, we keep persisting because um, somebody just might sit up and take notice. And if they don't want you tagging in, they can block you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I'll, I'll give you the mail now that I know um, there's one person that's certainly following you and very en- enthusiastic about what you're doing and just and being given hope by it as well. So, And that's me. Oh, oh thank you. Thank yeah. you, Tony. Well, we've yeah. been, if, if we may return that, we've been buoyed by your straightforwardness uh, to engage and not be frightened or fearful of who's watching. Uh, <laughs> can, can I just say uh, I, I, I found it um, amazing. Um, Karen does fantastic social work and I've just flabbergasted that the people she's been able to bring into our network all over the world. It's just that groundswell that I, you know, I get to t- talk to people I'd think I'd have no, you know, never ever thought I'd speak to someone like that. But, you know, I've had people from America help me fix something. People, we've, we've had people from England, uh, from Sweden, from New Zealand, you know, all coming in to have a bit of a chat and, uh, sharing ideas and it's just been mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. I think more and more of us are realising that it's not about accumulating stuff. It's about connecting with people and and just saying, you know, like our lifestyle is is causing us uh, to head to a cliff and, and let's stop before we get there. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's just one thing I would like to say to anyone who's listening and feels like this is a very large problem and that we individually can't solve it, and that is that we can each only do what we can do. So if all you can do is post things on social media, then that's what you do, and you do that and you help whoever you can help. If all you can do is save a nest of an endangered bird in your backyard by building a nesting block, then that's what you do. So we all need to support each other and stop tearing strips off each other for not being good enough and just help each other do the bit that we're going to do because together we can do amazing things on our own. We can do very little. Amen. And, and, and yeah. that's exactly uh, what we have a hashtag for in the Sustainable Hour. We've been uh, going on for a couple of years now talking about the climate revolution that we need to make happen. And in that is hashtag find your role. Mm. It's really what it's all about. Find your role in the climate revolution. And now I went so quickly with the sure three of did. you. Thank you so much, Karen. Danny and Jeff, and uh, 
all the best with the work that you do. And I think we need, after this, we might need to change the way we always end the hour because we keep saying, be the difference. And having listened to you today, I'm thinking we might have to say, be together. In today's world, we don't need more hatred. We don't need more fear. We need more hope and realization that we live together. The most important word in today's world is in fact together.